Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awooga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello and welcome back to the Dwarfcast Book Club, the series in which we reread, discuss and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels bit by bit. Way back in 2020, we successfully completed the two Grant Naylor penned books, so now we're moving on to the first of the two solo sequels, Doug Naylor's Last Human. Just to confuse matters, this episode covers the prologue, part one, Siberia, and the first five chapters of part two, Time Fork. Your genetically engineered hosts for the evening are Jonathan Capps, Hi. Danny Stevenson, Hello. <laughs> and me, Ian Symes. And we've also got a bumper crop of comments left by our loyal listeners slash readers over at www.ganymede.tv. As always, we recommend you re-familiarise yourself with the novel before listening, and we'll do our best to avoid spoiling anything that happens later in the book, which is particularly important for this one, because a lot happens in this book. But before we get started, it's probably worth a recap of what happened at the end of the last novel. Well, to be honest, it really isn't that relevant, but we've already written it, so fuck it. After Lister's body is ejected into space, Rimmer informs Holly, who formulates a plan. The crew go and get the coffin back. Meanwhile, an old man wakes up and has a heart attack, then gets better. His name is Retzel Divad, because like everything else in this universe, it's backwards. After retrieving Lister's body, the crew also collect a mysterious canister, as per Holly's instructions, and set off to the Omnizone, heading to a particular planet in a universe where time runs backwards. Lister picks up a note from his crewmates saying they'll pick him up in 36 years. He heads home and finds Kachansky waiting for him. There you go, short and sweet. Lovely. A subsequent book does continue on from that point, uh, but yeah. there's a bit of a gap in this one, which we'll come to because there's actually there's a lot to discuss before the story actually gets started in this book. For a start, should we talk about the cover? Can do. Yeah. Because a few people spoke about that. I really like the cover. It's um, different. It's dark, and it has shiny sunglasses on a skull. <laughs> yeah, which is a, which feels like an unnecessary like that. That would have had a non-negligible kind of impact on the cost of every copy right so it's kind of a, a nice little uh flourish i think it's just because the title's got the silvering on it as well so it was like we might as well do something else while we can all the skulls are like the skulls of humanity right like it's all figurative but it is a little bit weird i guess it, it feels a bit like um one of the kind of the foreign covers that is is has been drawn by someone who hasn't doesn't really know the show but has read Mm. A synopsis of what goes on. I'm just looking to see if the illustrator is credited. I don't think they are. Yeah, weird. Someone on payroll at Penguin. <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. We've got a lot of mixed reactions about the um, the cover, though. Yeah. So Dave said, I quite like the illustration, which gives a sense of this book having a slightly darker flavour to the first two, which uh, that's certainly correct. And it's interesting that Lister is so recognisable in the silhouette. But I'm not sure why the sunglasses are there. <laughs> Is it to clue in the readers that this is a comedy? And yeah, I think it probably is. International Debris hates the sunglasses. Yeah. So, you know. They're re- really riding the, 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 like the cusp of their shit good <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> interface there. Yeah, no, I think, I think Dave's probably right. Is that like, it's so the sunglasses are there to lighten it up a bit. Um, yeah. Tom Lister put them on there just as a because it was funny for him. <laughs> make light of a situation you know, in the way that Lister usually does and then I guess the next interesting thing after that is the special acknowledgements page 
basically Doug talking about Rob and saying that in the summer of 1993, Rob expressed a desire to write a Red Dwarf novel on his own, which, who was it pointed out? Dave pointed out that that's uh, before Series 6 even went out, summer 93, that he expressed that desire. I found that acknowledgement section, I don't know whether this is retrospect, uh, knowing that Rob and Doug's relationship isn't great. It seems a bit impersonal and kind of factual, this section. Yeah, almost like it kind of needs to be there, but like the fact that he's basically pinning the decision of them doing solo novels just entirely on Rob. It's mm. like, I'm doing this because because Rob decided. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I would have done another Grant Naylor book, but here you go, you've got, you got one from me now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Because Rob decided he wanted to go off and do his own book, you know? With Blackjack and Hook. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so I suppose that I will thank him for all of the scripts that I pillaged. <laughs> <laughs> However, do you know who doesn't get thanked? <laughs> Let me guess. Is it Norman again? <laughs> it is Norman again. Is it? Yeah, Hattie gets thanked despite the fact that she's no longer in the show at this point. Mm-hmm. But then it was never Hattie's decision to leave. It was a production decision rather than her leaving. Yeah. So there's, I don't know, maybe there was still a bit of bad blood between Doug and Norman at this point. But this novel was only actually released about a year before they started shooting Series 7, which had Norman in it. So clearly they weren't far off healing whatever rift there may have been. And for the most part, there's a big list of sort of behind-the-scenes people on Red Dwarf that he thanks as well. But it's only the most recent crew, so the people that worked on Series 6. Uh, so he thanks Andy Diemeny and Justin Judd, for example, but not mm. Ed By or Paul Jackson. So I think not to read much into that other than he's just thanked the most recent people. Just the current people or that, that he maybe he's expecting to about to work with because maybe Andy Diemeny was kind of on the cards at that point. But yeah, yeah, yeah. And again, Ed ended up coming back for yeah. seven and eight, so there's clearly no ill will. So then, before the story starts, we get a prologue. So I have a question. Yes, is this how evolution works? <laughs> <laughs> One of my notes is: Is that how evolution happens, though? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean. If you're going to boil it down, obviously it is, but evolution is imperceptible. Or you'd imagine evolution was imperceptible. You wouldn't, like, you don't just want, you know, like, it is based on mutations, sure, but those mutations are small and not, like, an Mm. entire different physiology. I think sometimes the mutations do leap. Right, so you get you get the big ones and then the little ones. I think so. I think I think there's a, the the science to say that some mutations can like leap, and then it's a case of whether that mutation actually works or not. Because you'd think with this child, it's taken a, a huge leap in one direction, um, not into one direction, but um, in one direction. <laughs> well, eventually, after so, <laughs> millions of years of evolution, <laughs> you get one direction. <laughs> yeah, I mean, all roads lead to one direction. So that. Human, the first human, the first Homo erectus, was it? At that point, um, homo, it says. has to um, has to then breed with someone who isn't, who hasn't got that mutation, and so all of her children, and it's going to take a few generations for any of them. Like her, her mutations are going to be watered down. So it's almost, it's weird in that mm. way, in that you have this large leap, and then there's going to be one step forward, two steps back, sort of a thing. But I guess it's just, an, it's just an, an ape with a massive head. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, aren't we all? <laughs> <laughs> Huge head. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it is shorthand, isn't it? Yeah, at some point. 
there was a first human. And like, yeah, the the detail, the description of the childbirth. I wonder if he consulted Linda for some of the details. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and the the book as a whole, without going too far into it, but it's definitely a theme that emerges in these first parts as well. Is heavily about parenthood by starting mm. with the first human parent or the first parent of a human. Um, is I guess is, is a good start. Also, the age that I read this. When was this ninety five? I mean, really, this is like you know, because sex education was non existent for me, as I imagine it was for a lot of people. It is basically the first time I've ever had a childbirth, um, it's, uh, like described in a work of fiction or <laughs> like in a book or anything. And that's why when your own son was born a few years ago, you <laughs> immediately went and bit the umbilical yeah. cord and clean off. And I love that detail in there that it's right down to the um, she left the space of a thumb. Um, between the baby and the umbilical cord, and then bit it off with another space. It's almost like he'd read pre-Wikipedia article on how <laughs> how Neanderthals gave birth and how they dealt with the umbilical cord, and he's just pasted <laughs> the dry details Bring about it in, in Carter. Yeah, in Carter. Yeah, but also um, Brian Blessed claims to have uh, helped <laughs> helped a woman give birth in a park. Uh, once in the 60s and then bit the umbilical cord off with his bare teeth. So, you know, it does happen. As, as weird as, as... I mean, I thought you were going to say a brand blessed gave birth. I mean, it would sound like... <laughs> <laughs> yes! Push, everybody, push! <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a funny one because it, it's something I have absolutely zero experience with to, to, to pass comment on. But, I mean, the evolutionary thing, I'm sure that obviously there has to be a point when... A, a human is no longer the previous species. It's like the whole mm. chicken and egg argument. There is a point where the chicken is coming out of the egg where it wasn't a chicken before. It has to has to have been a point yeah. in actual, you know, whether that's like an incredibly thin line or whether it's a big wedge, I don't know. At some point, there's a tipping point where there's there's more with this new with with enough of this new mutation in order to be like basically okay now you know it, yeah like I say it's a tipping point. It's not just oh here's the first human child and now everyone will be human from now on <laughs> if we do have any evolutionary biologists listening then leave us a comment and explain <laughs> explain evolution to us please yeah explain how this how it can work because it does mention that there is actually sort of three stages well two stages before we actually get to homo sapiens yeah you know, yeah. so there is there is that whole initial it's not like it all of a sudden it is a human it's like it is the next step in the in the in the chain viewed in hindsight i guess but the the, the fact that she like the mother knew that this child was was different or, or wrong i guess in the context of what she expected yeah that seems like a leap but uh, again i don't actually know could be talking out of my ass one thing I did notice, though, is that if we're looking for a candidate of, like, where does a lot of the, the nice um, bits of language or, you know, little kind of creative flourishes come from, um, the the phrase pain lassoed and mm. another lasso um, is, is quite nice, quite descriptive mm. language. What was it that's it been said before is that um, you're using... Using nouns as verbs. Yeah, yeah, nouns as verbs. There's a lot of that in... Um actually part one of the book Siberia I noted a couple down uh, that Lister hush puppied his way down the courtroom (laughs) (laughs) and then an airlock door chunged open yeah very nice very good I like the the um, the connection between the prologue and then I think someone mentioned this in the uh, in the in the comments it was a it was Dave saying, um, opening with the origins of humanity feels very consciously 2001. It's even written in a style mm. a bit reminiscent of the 2001 novel and the jump forward by six million years. The next chapter feels like the jump cut from the bone to the ship. 
in the 2001 movie and i was like yeah that's an excellent way of putting that because it's mm-hmm. just yeah it's exactly how i saw it yeah it's the baby curled up in the fetal position to lister in the position it's it slightly reminds me of a robberus which obviously comes later than this where the opening scene is set in the past with baby lister and then it crossfades from baby lister to current lister yeah i think that's doug wanting to get that kind of idea in the show i think he really wanted to do that yeah it's good it's it's kind of it's joined up in that mm. way there's also, in a first and unique for a Red Dwarf novel, there's illustrations for each chapter heading as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. They're, they're very strange, but um, I think they, they, they one, add to the tone. This, this one's a bunch of lads having a lovely old swim. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're quite annoyed. It reminds me of, oh, God, I don't know, like, the period. Um, maybe Renaissance art of, like, a load of tortured souls in hell. Yeah. Yeah, and and you yeah. can, there's just millions of faces you can like look yeah. at individual people having little crises. It's kind of that sort of style. Mixed with a bit of 80s, 90s video game art. Yeah. You know, like the the art that you used to get on uh, sort of Spectrum games or Amiga games where the graphics couldn't possibly live up to the illustrations and like you couldn't use the graphics to sell the game so they had these elaborate illustrations on the front. It's that kind of yeah. art style. Yeah. But yeah, it's a short part, very much so. It's even shorter than the end of Better Than Life, which we managed to get uh, a whole hour and a half uh, podcast out of. But yeah, this entire part, Siberia, is like a pre-titles sequence, uh, were it not for the fact that we've already got the prologue, (laughs) which acts as that. But this is kind of, without giving too much away from later in the book, this is basically a section of what's going to happen later in the narrative that's been plucked out in a non-linear fashion. And so we've got a little taster of where where Lister ends up. And then we start the book proper that tells us how we got there. Mm-hmm. And it's a technique that is particularly used on sort of more modern TV than this era. Um, Breaking Bad is the obvious example in the first episode of yeah. Breaking Bad you see it opens with a pre-title sequence which is Walter White in a ridiculous scenario and then it cuts to him just as a normal bloke science teacher and you think, it's designed to make you think well, how the fuck did he get there? Record scratch. You're probably wondering how I got here. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe it's not as modern a technique. <laughs> but yeah, what it is, is a a small courtroom drama, first of all. <laughs> Lister on trial. Well, he's he's on his way. He's like he's woken up and he's on his way to his trial. Oh, he's on his way to, to Siberia, isn't he? And he's remembering his trial. He's kind of almost having like multiple inception layers of flashbacks as he kind of... Yes, like, yes, that's it, of course. Yeah. yeah. If it sounds like we're floundering a bit, it's really difficult to kind of ground yourself in in this book sometimes mm. and especially this opening paragraph because it is the first time you read it as well it's so so disorientating is that i have never read this first chapter and remembered the twist which we don't yeah. know yet uh, but we do find out in this first part it's like i have yeah. every single time i've read it i have forgotten yeah what the <laughs> twist is yeah and it, it's doing so many things with the narrative and the the order in which you learn things. Yeah. Imagine reading this as a nine-year-old, as I did. Yeah. <laughs> it was very, very difficult indeed. It was a big old barrier in, the, in this book. A crisp barrier. It was a crisp... Well, one of the biggest crisp barrier was that the audiobook wasn't read by Chris Barrier. Yeah, that's true, yeah. <laughs> um, I didn't have an unabridged uh, Chris Barrier audiobook to rely on, so it, it took me a while to get actually get through this book, I think, in the way that the first two books are so 
accessible. Like there's there's bits that are confusing, which we talked about as we went last time. But there's a lot of familiarity to ground yourself in, and a lot of just fun, funny stuff. Uh, whereas this book starts off quite relentlessly bleak, unfunny. Yeah. <laughs> like there's a it's dark and plotty. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot happening, and it's definitely a, a very good sci-fi premise or a series of sci-fi premises that are introduced. Um, but it's a different type of red dwarf, and that's not necessarily a criticism. Yeah. But it, it's it's nothing like the first two books. It's completely different. Yeah. It introduces a whole new raft of gelfs that are basically just bits of existing animals cobbled together in a Doctor Frankenstein style <laughs> yeah. way. Just, just two it, or three that makes me think, to... in retrospect, <laughs> obviously didn't at the time, but makes me think of. The Beast of Royston Vasey in the League of Gentlemen, which turns out to be some missing farmyard animals that have been bolted together. Also, Man Bear Pig. Yeah, Man Bear Pig. <laughs> so this is a part where the serious sci-fi tone and it being a comedy kind of clash in a bad way because mm. the, all these gelfs were meant to be workers, basically terraforming workers, but they don't make any logical sense. Like, they are these creatures put together because that's what's amusing, almost. Mm. It's a bit like in Backwards, about, you know, the, the, the mechanoids being given stupid names. And I think if more had been made of that, if they'd have explicitly said that they were the result of humans pissing about, yeah. then it would be a lot more believable. Yeah. That is a, a realistic human trait, to create a creature that, you know, is deliberately Ridiculous. ugly just to take the piss. Yeah. Yeah, or kicking over big dog, you know, or trying to kick over big dog. <laughs> Similar sort of thing. <laughs> Like just just make it make it something and make but making it shit to make sure that you know or like or just you know I don't know a certain dominance I guess but but yeah. Re- really yeah it doesn't really make much sense unless like there really was a lack of genetic material to craft these um, these creatures from when they were made. But then if you're splicing different species DNA, it's not going to like have the head of one animal and the um, yeah you're right and the yeah. body of another is it? Yeah, it would be a proper. Meld, hybrid, yeah, rather than a, like a, a cut and shut, shunt, like a liger or whatever. Yeah, yeah, or a, yeah. Or a crossbreed dog. The naming conventions in this is is Doug just slamming his head against the keyboard. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I hope at this stage it was a soft keyboard, not a typewriter, because they could have done themselves some damage if it was still on it. I mean, that would explain head. series seven and eight. <laughs> There's a bit of head cannon. I was thinking about this earlier, and I was like, the reason why these names are so ridiculous is because the guy in charge of the birth certificates and stuff just had no hands, so he just had to use whatever, whatever limb he had to type with, and that's why all these names are so bizarre. Okay, I'll go for that. <laughs> but it can be consistent as well because there's a correction like there's actually a, a like I don't even know how to pronounce I'm not even going to try and pronounce it but there's a there's a word where he's printed he's correcting Lister with a pronunciation because he said it's slightly wrong because he yeah. didn't oh, throw yeah. it yeah the cock international debris does make a very good point in that the unpronounceable word jokes get old really quickly or pretty quickly and um they yeah. do that's a good point they really do <laughs> at this stage of the book it is a gag but throughout really Doug gives things like long complicated unpronounceable sci-fi names whether that's the names of moons or asteroids or species or later on there are there are characters that have got really weird hard to pronounce names and it kind of reminds me of Chris Chibnall which is never a good thing yes but in Chris Chibnall's Doctor Who basically every new alien is introduced every new planet is introduced has had a really the finale of his first season is the battle of Rag, rag, yeah, something or other, yeah. 
like Scaro <laughs> is an easily to remember and pronounce name and it's memorable as a result. Whereas, yeah, there's there's a character that we haven't met yet, but it's a fault really for a major character in a novel where you'd have to Google their name to find out how to spell it every time you wanted to write it down. And also going through, because like, I read this before I listened to Craig Charles's brilliant audiobook version, um, <laughs> and that's where a lot of the the um, pronunciations that well I've had to get it from was was the was the audiobook. But I don't necessarily trust the pronunciations that came out of that. But like, mm. um, God, how much like, of that is just generally? create like yeah just, you know, the just way he pronounces it. words that like normal human words yeah i've not heard how this sounds so like does he have a good stab at these names from what i remember he kind of does but then like the first take you suspect yeah right and he the worst thing too long on them the worst thing about it is when he's doing the voices for them because he he basically does all of the voices like like the snuggeraf like he, he speaks like you would expect him to but it is the most unpleasant thing to listen to <laughs> that you can imagine like all of his voices has got like half a gallon of phlegm in the back of his throat basically for, yeah. for, for almost all of these and it's just unbearable and actually incomprehensible at times y- yeah which is not ideal for an audiobook i mean sticking on what um, international debris said because there's some good points here that just generally like this is totally different to where better than life left off obviously five and six find them in a more populated universe but from a book perspective this is a huge culture shock a transport Mm. ship with 50 or 60 other prisoners in it immediately introduces the fact that this isn't a book about a small group of characters in space doug solo dwarf has always had more guests than the grand era and it begins here later on we do get some context for this like we're not in our universe anymore which is probably fair enough yeah, mm. um, and none of these Gelfs are from the same universe either. Like everyone's kind of converging on this weird omnizone, uh, almost like uh, flotsam and jetsam washing up on various yeah. shores, um, which kind of explains some of it. But you, but they're right. Like when it comes to tone, it's just like yeah. complete gear shift. Doesn't explain the fact that the same populated universe thing continues from series seven onwards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and in fact, identity within. The unmade episode of Series 7 has a lot in common with this book. Um, it seems to be set in the same universe as Last Human. Yeah. For sure. Um, oh, huge. But, yeah, yeah. but yes, after the the flashback to the trial, Lister lands on the prison planet, which is Siberia, the concept of which is basically worse than life. Worse than death. <laughs> <laughs> it's an AR simulation of your own personal hell, which is done via um, people being shaved and dropped into cyber foam and weird, like doing physical things to people in order Mm. to get them plugged into this um, computer program. Again, it's very dystopian sci-fi type thing. I think I think it's 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 pretty unconscionable how much he uh, travelled four years into the future and ripped off the Matrix. <laughs> but I imagine they're probably drawing off the same sort of uh, source material here because it is incredibly Matrixy in visual. I cannot believe that this book and the Matrix were only four years apart. That seems very old to me. Yeah, maybe three. But yeah, we're, uh, better than life was very dominant in the in the first two books <clears throat> mm. um and to, to my taste too dominant and then reading this and thinking oh god here we go again obviously it doesn't end up being 
a huge part of it, but it's um, it almost feels like get another idea. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Um, At this stage, the fact that this is so early in the book, you think, "Oh shit, here we go again." Yeah, to yeah. quote um, CJ from GTA San Andreas, <laughs> <laughs> as you oft want to do. <laughs> but just thinking about it as like that, this whole infrastructure just being there all of the kind of the cast of characters around that like, something that i didn't uh, we didn't mention when we were talking about like in the run-up to being put into siberia was um axis syndrome holograms yes yeah. that's a really cool idea that is tossed out there what does it mean it sounds to me like it's holograms that have gone evil uh they probably read mein Kampf and um get get some ideas <laughs> you know <laughs> I googled Axis Syndrome. Axis Syndrome isn't a real thing. No. Well, Axis um, is like is 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 to be on the on the opposing mm. side. I mean, I guess because like Axis is not like the Germans in World War Two did not describe themselves as Axis. That was our Are description. We the baddies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That was our description of them in Italy and uh, Japan. Yeah. Um, beca- because evil. it's from our perspective, so presumably it's just <clears throat> holograms going against the the societal norms. You know. Yeah. holograms that kill i was thinking it genuinely is like a like axis syndrome was like they don't have a z-axis <laughs> Flat. they don't have any depth <laughs> well funnily enough that we were led to believe that that's what vimmer's hologram has been like this whole time has been 2d but we'll get to that maybe maybe it just happens to holograms that have got a particularly big axe to grind Oh, it's just a cool sounding sciencey thing that can be something that goes wrong with the hologram you maybe think of landstrom and yeah, also quarantine. low rimmer as well. Yeah. So yeah, Landstrom had Axis syndrome, maybe. Yeah. Like the hollow virus gave her Axis syndrome. Ah, Some sort okay. of fearful hollow plague. And then, of course, we should mention the snug giraffe. <laughs> yes. Uh, which is that how you pronounce it? Because we were having a debate. Well, before, snug giraffe. Yeah, we had a debate because it's it's a slug or it's a giraffe. So is it a hard G or a soft G? Is it a GIF or is it GIF? <laughs> I mean, snug giraffe. There's a. If if it's if it's like GIF or JIF, then there is only one correct answer, um, and that would be hard G. Snug giraffe. Snug yeah, sounds easy to yeah, say. Yeah, snug that, giraffe. That rings. I mean, we had this conversation before we started recording, but snug giraffe sounds like something you'd get from Toys R Us. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's like more like snug than because otherwise, it's like it's like Jedward, isn't it? Like Edward. I mean, what isn't like Jedward? John only gets like the first initial. It's just unfair. It's an imbalance that we need to fix. Yeah, it should be Joe Wood. Uh, the snug giraffe or snug giraffe is described as like a giant spent phallus. <laughs> Oh, d- like a giant spent fella. <laughs> <laughs> the description of this guy, it reminds me a bit of incompetence in that he's been described as a bit of a social outcast. Like he was made from, sorry, I should say they were made from like the sweepings like of things that you wouldn't want to put into other creatures. So maybe was made as a bit of a joke and just thrown in the, the arc that was sent off to do the terraforming or whatever. But it's a bit of social mobility in that, you know, this guy's worked his way up. <laughs> he's a bit rimmery in, in certain ways. Like, you get a bit of internal monologue. He's stood in front of a load of people and he's powering through and he knows his techniques for, like, how to deal with talking in public and stuff like that. And he's actually got somewhere <laughs> in his career, you know, even though he's almost wholly unsuitable for it, which is the bit that reminds me a bit of incompetence. Well, the thing is, he's used as a power source because he, he eats shit. Yeah, uh, that is such a funny... And produces a fuel. That's so such a funny it's... throwaway line. It's like... <laughs> it does kind of remind me of the Vogons a bit, 
like in Hitchhikers to some extent, like in just their grotesqueness. Yeah. This, this whole first bit always reminds me very much of, of Hitchhikers and the kind of the Vogon fleet and how it looks and how it feels in terms of like yeah. aliens doing Alien bureaucracy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, with with the snug, the snuggeraf obviously again is just like let's just throw a load of things together that sound funny. But I th- I think this is probably his most successful stab at it, in that it you know it creates this really kind of interesting creature, this interesting character. It's just like you you genuinely kind of want to know what he's what he's doing with his life, and <laughs> I don't know. But I do the bit that does make me laugh is the uh, there's, there's a bit of a Monty Python feel on this where he says uh, you've had fair trials in your home asteroids and the one guy says I haven't, I haven't yet. and he says no I haven't either nor me it's like Not that my whole thing it does feel very um, I'm Brian yes no I didn't no no <laughs> feels very British yeah. there's a gag where it says he's the most ugly creature ever to have the good fortune to breathe oxygen with the possible exception of George Formby. It seems harsh. <laughs> it does, doesn't it? I think Cal Malden would have been like the. the... Was <laughs> George Formby in the chair? Must have been in the ugly chair <laughs> yeah. in 1995. Well, I guess. I mean, he's distinctive looking, but um, maybe it's just a you had to be there during that particular time frame. But like sometimes some of their targets are just like you, just, you think, what? I mean, yeah. It's Brian Kidd all over again. <laughs> yeah, Brian Kidd. Is what I was just thinking. Of. At least George Formby is someone that you know most people will have heard of. Yeah. That's true. So we know by the end of this G&T cobbled together part that this Lister is not our Lister. Uh, We don't know that when we're reading this, but um, I find it interesting when he's kind of going through his Inception-like layers of flashbacks. He has some details in here that don't quite match up with our Lister. It almost feels like he's got some Rimmer in there. Like um, Dave mentions that the anecdote about the summer party in the officer's mess feels like Lister's version of gazpacho soup. And you can't imagine Alistair having that that um, yeah interaction. Like he never would have he never would have bothered. It's interesting that it doesn't seem to have affected him, him so badly. But we'll see about that. So yeah, if you if you're being generous, you can say that this is all a clue that that, that you know this is not all is as it seems. This isn't Alistair, or it could just be inconsistent characterization. Um, I would probably, I mean, being generous to Doug isn't something that I that comes naturally to me. But I probably would be in this case. There's so much that's off about this chapter. It's designed to um, kind of knock you for six a little bit. <clears throat> Things like Lister's locks being cut off, you know, he's, you know, suddenly you have to imagine him bald, and there's all sorts of things that are meant to make you squirm a little bit and just feel like something's not quite right. Mm. So, yeah, I would probably give him the benefit of the doubt there. Because, this, I mean, this book is so heavily about Lister's character, but a lot of it explores kind of the, you know the specific nature of Lister and his character. So I, I feel like Doug probably had a good good grasp on it at this point. There's the bit when he knows he's going to lose the trial, so he just completely drops trial and then just, <laughs> just, just you know puts his um, puts his feet up on the desk and just thinks that for yeah you know, cracks open a can yeah, of that's, beer. That's How... very very Lister. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, that's definitely the Lister we know. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting bit as well like the lead up to that and the again more unpronounceable nonsense about the legal system mm. we we get a bit more of a an expanding of of the weird legal systems that they set up and it's actually pretty cool but it's basically all like a, a massive take on i mean it's not exactly hidden away but it's kind of a massive take on like you know the gulags of fairly early soviet russia 
Um, yeah, the the Siberian name. Yeah, the Siberian <laughs> name was my first way. clue, um, <laughs> and the kind of basically using the justice system as a way to kind of quash sedition before it even happens. Mm. Have, yeah. Literally having a, a jury of people that is just there to make shit up about someone just to get them thrown into a gulag. Which obviously wouldn't happen in modern day Russia. <laughs> no, or modern day. Um, any other country probably um, happens happens all over the place. Well, in, international debris says that the virtual reality personal hell punishment is a bit much. <laughs> um, effectively, it's a system that makes no pretense towards rehabilitation. Instead, offering a sentence that is basically just torture that will no doubt lead to severe mental instability. Uh, so yeah, this is not a this is not a good system. Yeah, it's, it's Guantanamo, way. isn't it? Yeah, because Guantanamo isn't about rehabilitation or anything. It's it, it's just about a statement of power. Well, I mean, I mean, maybe even like the intel side of Guantanamo is kind of a front, really. Like mm. because that's so they're so open about that is that like you know we try to get information from people there, but really it is a global statement of power and the power of America to do what it wants and to imprison who it wants. And I guess yeah. this is just we will literally send you to hell if you don't follow these um very strict rules that we have if you're going to exist in our society because they're all just fighting for their existence because because they're genetic mishmashes <laughs> so they have to have all these you know um statements of power and um and keep things confusing keep the law confusing because it it keeps the powerful in control which is not not at all like real life satires <laughs> Uh, Dave says, I'd suspect that the Snud Giraffe has been so named just to keep the running gag and the dwarf cast going, were it not for the small matter of this book having been published 25 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> it's such a tiny detail to count against it, feels unfair. Like... <laughs> I mean, I mean, he does he does basically say that, you know, one of the punishments is to um, have sex with it, so you know, there, there is... Yeah, yeah. There is if there's two at once. <laughs> you must spit roast me. <laughs> there you go. That joke is a little bit off, isn't it? Of a rape threat, yeah. It's a bit of a, like, without wanting to sound like Mary Whitehouse, it's a bit of a base gag, even for a dwarf. Do you know what I mean? It's just a bit, like, it's a bit easy to, like, huh, you have to shag this slug if you... <laughs> International Debris says that um, it suggests that Rob wasn't necessarily responsible for all the unpleasantness in their uh, collaborative <laughs> yeah. work. So, Which is yeah, true, yeah. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> Oh yeah, there's lots of outlets in this book for like Doug yeah. to show us how I mean, dark he is. It feels like season five and six kind of set up Red Dwarf as having this level yeah. of kind of squick, if you know what I mean. Like squick, like, that's good. I like it. <laughs> like Demons and Angels kind of started to do mm. with the, the amount of blood in the heart and stuff. That was kind of quite yeah. Crazy. As a kid, I used to get quite freaked out by that. And then like in Sirens, with all of the descriptions of stuff about what they do to you and uh, you know what the you know the whole thing of finding entrails in the on the floor and things like that. So it's like, yeah, yeah. They, they obviously had had this this joint level of <laughs> liking a bit more gore. gory stuff, yeah. yeah. Shall we move on to uh, hmm. Time Fork? Time Fork. Fork me. The second part of the book, which again has its little picture. Um, it's lovely. Uh, I found that one quite dull, really. Maybe it would look right. better if it was in colour. Sort of <laughs> yeah, printed. maybe better quality because it's no just matter a... how bad it looks on your page it looks even worse on this kindle <laughs> uh but yeah we open the story proper about 20 odd pages in and it's sirens it's the uh it's the opening section of sirens pretty much verbatim serving the same purpose i guess uh mm-hmm. to some extent of getting any new people up to speed 
with the situation, with the characters. Yeah, it's a very standalone sort of a book, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Yeah. And for, for anyone who is familiar with the characters, it's a kind of like, ah, okay. It's a grounding. In the same way, in Better Than Life, we spoke about the fact that it opens in Better Than Life, but uh, when it cuts back to Holly on board Red Dwarf and all the stuff with the toaster, that's like, okay. That's, that's a relief, yeah. Yeah, it's like, ah, oh, we're back. This is Red, this is Red oh, Dwarf. This yeah. is okay. Not only is this Red Dwarf, but it's like that that episode I watched last year. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. yeah, specifically, it's now Series 6. Red Dwarf, i.e. just on Starbug, no Holly. Yep. I think most of Series 6, between this and backwards, most of Series 6 gets absolutely pillaged. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Almost all of Series yeah. 6 has just been typed up, basically. Because, yeah, this is a point of difference, I guess, with the first two books, is that it doesn't take the plot of Sirens, it just takes big chunks of the dialogue. Later on, it yeah. does the same thing with Legion. It doesn't make any real attempt to change it or come up with a new twist on the same idea, which is what the first two novels did so well. Mm. There is a bit of that later on. There are times where it takes elements from episodes, but it's it, I don't know. It seems odd and not terribly satisfying to just have big chunks of um, scripts that have just been typed up. It feels a bit like what what was happening towards the end of Better Than Life. Mm. But I do like, I, I like, I mean, obviously, like, there's a lot of gags that carry over or that are reused. But the, the, the combining Lister being disorientated with this deep sleep, along with being disorientated about him not being on backwards earth anymore. Mm. And actually, this is a point that I'm not clear on. This sounds to me like he has gone from being rescued in backwards earth to literally immediately put into deep sleep for whatever reason because when he wakes up he has to readjust the fact that time's moving forwards whereas later on I get the impression that they'd been pootling along and they only went into the deep sleep after they'd gone through the Omnizone I I don't know, it's it's a weird one all I can think of is the fact that the, the 50 years he's just experienced is the stuff that's in his long term. Right, yeah. Okay. Rather than the fact that he's now back on the normal Earth and he's had to remember that. Yeah. And then, you know, it's sort of like, like muscle memory will go straight to backwards world and stuff. Yeah, yeah. he's fresh from backwards world here. That's yeah. true. Yeah. But that's right, because he, he, he does immediately go to the bathroom when he tries to brush his teeth and he thinks he's trying to actually, like, he's trying to make the toothpaste appear mm. and it doesn't happen. <laughs> And he's like, oh, hang on, this is weird. This why is he not doing it? Yeah. So that's that's one way that it differs from Sirens, and the other is I don't know about you, but whenever I watch Sirens, I always think, do you know what this scene could do with <laughs> someone someone walking in and having a gratuitously described sex scene in the middle <laughs> of it? <laughs> Kachansky's here, everyone. Yay! And they say you can't write for women. <laughs> yeah. It's very odd, and I don't like it. <laughs> it's uncomfortable. And I think a lot of that, to be fair, comes from being familiar with the audiobook, which is even more uncomfortable. Oh. I mean, it, it has it's become a long-standing meme in fandom, yeah. um, specifically on G&T as well, amongst some commenters. Yeah. And there's a reason for that. And it's like, like, it's very rare that I've read a sex scene in a book and thought, well, that was tastefully done. Because yeah. I'm, I tend to be, for 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 my faults, reading books that are written by men mm. <laughs> and old men. <laughs> like God, well, usually read, George R. R. Martin. Yeah, read George R. R. Martin. <laughs> Fuck me. 
but it also like aside from like the mechanics of how the scene is described and everything it's weird behavior from kachansky to be honest and and also from lister because he doesn't speak up just say look i don't know who you are a similar thing happens in oroboros again when kachansky uh wakes up and sees lister and grabs him and starts kissing him that's actually slightly worse because that's a case of mistaken identity in that she thinks that he's her Lister mm. and it's and Lister should stop her but doesn't. In this case, Lister's kind of the victim, really. Yeah, that's true. He's the vulnerable one, isn't he? Yeah. Because Kachansky comes in and has sex with him, not against his will as such, it's not that bad, but he's confused and disorientated and has just woken up from deep sleep. He's like imagine him waking up from anesthetic type scenario. Yeah. Basically, if you swapped the genders around, then this book would be awful. <laughs> the, the entire scene would be ruined. Yeah, it would be absolutely atrocious. <laughs> That's very true. But it gets away with it. It's very much a male fantasy type of sex scene as well, like having a woman. Just... I, I was going to say a beautiful woman. There is a line that is really harsh, Yeah, and, which and... is that she was a distance short of gorgeous. Yeah, and this yeah, th- right. this is following on from how she was first described in Infinity as well. Like she said, yeah. she didn't have a face that could launch a thousand ships, maybe like a small fishing boat or uh, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, like, negging Kachansky is definitely a, a thing that they've been doing from the beginning. It's really strange. It's like, is it, is it just like, is it to make her relatable? I, don't, I just don't know what the mm. what the point is there because, like, Lister make wouldn't it think more realistic that she'd be with Lister. Yeah. Maybe. I, well, maybe, but then Crichton sums that up pretty nicely, to be honest. She likes a bit of rough, fair enough. Yeah. Um, I think, from the point of view of Lister, who is hopelessly in love with this person, you don't think about the person that you love. Well, they've got a bit of way to go to be gorgeous, but, you know, I love that. Like, part of loving someone is being, like, like completely bought into, like, everything about them including their like you know how they look it's um it's very... how obviously wrong you may be <laughs> yeah. so with kachansky not necessarily this particular scene but in general <laughs> uh who do we picture uh do we picture claire or chloe it's chloe th- for me i think mainly chloe for me yeah but it's an interesting one because would she necessarily have been cast at this stage mm-hmm. when Doug wrote it it's interesting because he mentions the accent being like scottish potentially irish yeah, it's a, it's got a hint of a Scottish accent, but that overall she's posh, like she has a posh accent yes. with a hint of Scottish, which is like that's not Claire Grogan's accent. No, that that feels like he's get yeah he the posh side of things is I think is a completely new aspect to her character. I don't think mm-hmm. she was ever really described as posh or haughty or anything in the original. But so this this feels like Doug figuring out who the new version of Kachansky is going to be. It's kind of a halfway house, house yeah. in the same way that at times in the first two books, Crichton flitted between being David Ross and Robert Llewellyn. Yeah, yeah. This is like that, except that they haven't even had the Chloe Annette version yet, but this is, yeah, like conceptually, Doug has reimagined the character and is kind of halfway towards the, the transition to Chloe. The casting of Chloe Annette fills in the rest of the blanks here, but yeah, like as, as a whole, I actually like this version of Kachansky and I like mm. the impact she has on the dynamic. Like what, one of the big complaints about seven is that K- Kachansky completely um, fucked up the, the dynamic of the show. When in reality, Chris Barry not being there is what fucked up the dynamic of the show. But this Kachansky feels like she fits 
Yeah. Like, she, she's got something interesting about her in that she's got the pulling rank side of things and calling Rimmer Mr. Rimmer, while also, you know, having the relationship with Lister is complicated. Her character is about her authority rather than all being about the fact that she's the woman one. They don't even touch on her having any position of authority in the yeah. TV series, really, at all. So it's a shame we lose that. I like the way she interacts with Rimmer. It's, mm. it's a whole different dynamic. And I think like by the time they finally got Kachansky and Rimmer in the same series, in Series 8, it was too late for that so because they were, they were all prisoners and yeah. everything was fucked anyway. Yeah. But yeah, this version of Rimmer suddenly not being in charge anymore, suddenly being outranked by someone who deserves to outrank him and is a lot more competent and accomplished than he is, yeah. and him struggling to deal with it, it actually enhances it, like gives us an extra dimension to Rimmer. Whereas, yeah, it, it's not necessarily the fault of Kachansky and certainly not the fault of Chloe Annette, it's the fault of Doug, if anyone. Yeah. The fact that in Series seven her introduction does have a negative impact on well Crichton in particular her being there changes uh who Crichton is yep. uh, for the worse whereas her introduction here it, it shows us a version of a five strong crew that would have worked and i wonder if even at this early stage doug is got half an eye on the movie yeah 100 because he, he certainly did when he was making series seven yeah possibly yep. so maybe this is okay they've set up in better than life that kachansky is there and so why wouldn't kachansky be a character like when they go and rescue lister why wouldn't they rescue kachansky so let's see how it works mm-hmm. with the five of them one of them being kachansky one of the comments pointed out stillian i did i stillian and i did eyes yeah, so um, I wonder how much of Kachansky being a member of the crew was not only a resolution to Better Than Life, but also with a thought towards the TV series and even possibly the movie. Uh, Ed has said that they expected Chris to not want to be involved in Series 7 at, at all, and Doug may well have already had an eye on how he might have to replace him, which is mm. that's an interesting... The timelines are so tight, aren't they, between series and books and everything. It's really difficult to pin down the order of things in between the products. Like, what what was everyone thinking? What did everyone know before this thing was made? It's, it's one of the areas that I find the most interesting. So, like, yeah, was he right in this, knowing that there was a future of Red Dwarf without Chris, basically? Mm. You'd think maybe not, because a lot of effort is put into how Kachansky and Rimmer interact here. And there's also the, the, the nice detail of, like, her rank pulling isn't just limited to Rimmer. She does it with Lister later on as well. And the way Crichton is used in that, Crichton is still there protecting Lister, but he's doing it in a way where he's still um, obeying the orders of Kachansky. And so that's more interesting than him just being a child. Yeah. Um, so Doug really did find a great way to integrate her into the into the crew. I mean, the, cat, the cat's not just sat there being a chauvinist about her constantly, for a start. Well... Yeah, maybe I've missed something there. But... See, it's the bit where Kachansky and Rimmer are having their first little ding-dong. Cat sums up the situation by saying, this bitch is good. Oh, right, yeah. Well, that <laughs> that feels like... That feels like hip-hop parlance, maybe. Maybe. From the time that is not necessarily right now, but is probably no one would have batted an eyelid at that at the time. I don't yeah. Think. Or like if, I don't know, if like one of us... Uh, would we ever say, ah, oh, this cunt? <laughs> yeah, I think we would, wouldn't we? Like, you know, in like an endearing, yeah, endearing way. But it's, um, there's, there's denotation and connotation. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and there's a difference between a male character describing a female character yeah, as this, this bitch. bitch. Yeah, oh, especially bitch. one that, like, if they had a history going back years and years and years, yeah. you'd take it one way, but like, <laughs> he's 
probably only interacted just, with her for like a month or so. It just reminds me of Time Wave, and uh, that's <laughs> never good. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair point. So, we've skipped ahead a bit, but um, oh, I think the uh, the sex scene scrambled our brains. Uh, <laughs> There's loads that were said about the sex scene as well um, in the comments. Comment-wise. I don't know if oh, you go want on, Let's have a few of them. Let's have a few of them. <laughs> Dave says it's weird how the backwards stuff is skipped over so quickly. Did Doug know that Rob wanted to focus on that in his solo novel and so avoided doing too much of it himself? Did Doug just not want to bother with all the backwards logic and the difficult detail? Either way, it's battered away as fast as possible so that the book can get on with what's really important, an awful sex scene. <laughs> Someone else, I think it might be Stillianides, says something about, I'll quote Rob in that interview that was uh, that surfaced oh, yes. recently. The Dax and found. Rob, yeah, the Dax found. And, and Rob said... Um, Doug used loads of things that I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so leaving him the backward stuff maybe isn't so much, oh, I'll leave that because you wanted to do that. It's more that's what was left over. Yeah. So Rob kind of had to fill in the yeah. gaps that he could. Again, fascinating, like, to be a fly mm. on the wall. Because they must have talked about what they were doing as well. They must have talked about their plots because there's no way Rob read Last Human and then wrote backwards in six months or whatever. Yeah. Um Unless he did, I don't know. There's also the fact that they had started work, and we don't know how much work that they'd done on a, a third novel together mm-hmm. called The Last Human, which had been announced as far back as about ninety two, ninety three in this magazine. And we don't really know how much, if any, they wrote, or whether they'd put together like an outline or a plot summary, or if they'd just figured out together what they were going to do. But then in in the split, who got to keep that stuff and <laughs> who got the CD collection? Yeah, <laughs> how much of that survived in Last Human, how much of it made it into backwards, how much of it was lost altogether. And the assumption is is that Doug Doug got the lion's share, right? He got the name. And mm. Rob has said he's used a lot of ideas that I had in mind. Which yeah. translates to me as he he got our joint work um and I've yeah. started from scratch. But then, you know, that could be, you know, <laughs> A bitter person being, you know, a, a little bit ungenerous to the person yeah. that they've fallen out with. It's very difficult to to tell. God, I'd love. There must be some, at least something that exists of the last human, like a really early draft manuscript, or like the first few chapters, or an outline, like something written somewhere. Penguin would have an outline somewhere. I think an outline is probably the most substantial you get. I don't think they actually started work on it. Right, okay, that's interesting. I don't think they'd have got as far as a draft. Mm. But I I don't know. Don't know. Maybe that could be another Holy Grail. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Add it to the list, along with all the ones we forgot to say uh, last week. (laughs) Anyway, meanwhile, the setup of basically the, the gist of this novel is seeded here which is that they basically retcon the Omnizone which I'd forgotten that they did and it actually fits in with a lot of the stuff that we'd discussed in previous book clubs that you know in Red Dwarf it's got the whole thing of every decision you make creates an alternative dimension how does that fit in with the fact that there's only seven universes and so here it says that the Omnizone contains all seven universes and all the discarded timelines (laughs) so like an infinite number yeah. of of timelines are there in the Omnizone. Basically, saying it's like uh, it's like Dimension Jump. Don't ask anything. Yeah, anymore. it's like Dimension <laughs> Jump. Even though I'm not you the go one into the Omnizone and then you come out again, and yeah. you could be anywhere. Yeah, basically. and you have to you have to plug in very very precise coordinates. I guess yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think this is a good decision. Like, I, I think seven universe of restricting yourself to seven universes like as soon as you say that that feels like like you're setting yourself up to be kind of pseudo mythical like mm. it's like the, the the you know the seven seven hells or seven you know the, the the seven realms of norse mythology or something like that as soon as you've gone with the infinite uh, universes then you're starting to get into science that is that that has some grounding like yeah. the, you know the, the the infinite universes is a, a genuine um theory uh, that is actually quite you know quite well supported quite well respected and that you you feel like you're getting more the infinite side is getting more into sci-fi rather than uh fancy yeah. uh, so you can see why why you prefer that or you know, why you want to kind of change things to to, to get into that uh, especially because it supports what this story is trying to do later on yeah <laughs> yeah it's entirely necessary yeah um because um the crew find another starbug oh shit identical to their own uh except uh it's got decapitated people in it i I love that that is a really great way to end a chapter by the way like i believe yeah chapter one ends with them finding starbug not just any starbug but the same starbug the same um serial number and everything um which is really cool really effective and just like oh shit what's going on because you you almost get blindsided with just like oh it's sirens it's sirens are they going to find sirens mm, yeah no <laughs> now it's something completely different it's never been a problem for me but i do concede that it's true is that in series six there was a lot of those scenes like the cockpit scenes that were perhaps a little bit interchangeable that mm. because they'd come back from doing red dwarf usa and wanted to do the more gag heavy format where it's uh, like a series of one-liners one after the other and this kind of proves that you can lift out those bits and then append them like add a completely different plot on the end um and it doesn't matter because it, you know it's just some gags that just work yeah but yeah this this chapter sets up a lot of world building sort of biographical details yeah. that are, are themes for the rest of the book and not all of them are compatible with no. previous red dwarf previous novels for a start there's the starfleet apparently they're all part of the starfleet now not the space corps despite yeah. the fact that rimmer quotes space corps directives they are in fact part of the starfleet what the fuck is the starfleet i mean starfleet is star trek yeah yeah and Star Wars. Oh, is it right? Okay. Yeah. Star Wars. Star, Star, Star Wars. That's how Doug would say Star it. Wars. Star Wars. Red Dwarf. <laughs> Don't. <laughs> yeah, so like, what's he thinking? Like, has he just literally had as a brain fart? No, because he mentioned Space Corps in the same sentence. It's not like as if he's, you know, it, it, there, there is, he's chopping and changing between mm. It's like as if he's got a whole other, like, world building thing where he's added another level to the whole. The Space Corps is the one that's dealing with I don't know, everything to do with like aeronautics and then Starfleet is a division of that. Yeah. Starfleet is the military and Yeah, so like Starfleet is like your yeah, like your RAF. Or your Space Force. Yeah, basically. Space Corps is like NASA. If Kachansky and the rest of them are part of it, it must be to do with mining operations. But maybe it's like the, the cybernautics division of the police department. <laughs> yeah. It's just in charge of traffic control, but it has a rather silly macho name. <laughs> At the start, they've called the the miners the Starfleet. Yeah, we're the Starfleet. <laughs> it's like technician giving them a name that sounds good, but actually is like you know really mundane and shit. And it raises the questions like why? Mm. It doesn't add anything to the world building. It's confusion. It just confusion to the people that remember what you know the name of 
space car is. And for everyone else who's reading it new, they'd probably think, if anything, oh, that's weird, that's Star Trek, isn't it? Yeah. Um, that's not us, sir. It's not us, sir. So, yeah, that's weird. I, even worse, I think, which I'm assuming you're also alluding to, is Vimmer's retconned past. Yes, very much so. There's two, actually, I would say as well. There's also some confusion as to whether Rimmer is solid or not. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Going in order, because that one comes first. Um, Kachansky says that Rimmer can't help carry all the stuff because he's a hologram. So that's why he has to stay behind, because Cat and Crichton are more useful because they can carry stuff around. And then in the next paragraph, they establish that now he's got a hard light drive. Yeah. And he is, you know, as he is from Legion onwards. And he is tangible and he can carry things. Yeah. It's the next paragraph. Yeah. What the fuck? It's very, very strange. And also, it suggests that before he found the Solidogram... Also, Solidogram is the exact same name as the technology in Better Than Life that he the invented. The fictional, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's technically called the Solidgram in uh, okay. so the so the O is different. It's like filet fish. <laughs> in this universe, it was invented by an Irish guy, so it's called the Solidogram. <laughs> oh, the Solidogram. <laughs> yeah, and but it suggests that he was. It refers to his old self as two D. So, like, is that how he appeared? He appeared as two D. Like, surely. Surely they had the technology for three D holograms, but I guess in the mid nineties, the idea of a three D hologram yeah. would be. A I think it's way. just a projection from the viewpoint. It like, yeah. used, like I think we mentioned this before. It's like trees in computer yeah, games. Yeah, I where guess it's only based on your viewpoint, so it's always facing you the way you're looking. But that doesn't work for more than one person. But when you have yeah. a light beat in the middle of you, it suggests to me that it's rotating and producing a 3d image at least it's almost like as if it's not possible to visualize this because it doesn't exist (laughs) (laughs) yeah but he does mention the fact he was like that he's black and white as well like there is actually a comment about indeed yeah clem mentions that um rimmer's black and white when he's booted up um is that just while his image is loading or is it another retcon uh it would contradict better than life where he loses color when his light beam malfunctions rob and doug wanted him to be black and white in the series originally and that's why he's like that in this magazine it seems like an idea that doug's quite keen on what with the promised land i, I think it makes sense that he load up in black and white it's almost like the earliest or simplest version of him mm. and then if there's more power then more version mm. and then it would start adding to that information but yeah if we take the promised land as our source material then yeah, that was his emergency power mode, wasn't it? That was his like, sort of safe mode. Yeah, it starts like that. That's where he is when he first boots up by default, and then he detects whether he's powered up and whether he's you know got enough got power enough to go into. Yeah. It, yeah, and on the subject of Rimmer, the the thing that is like my least favorite thing about this entire book, I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it it breaks everything. It breaks Rimmer's character completely. So it's established that he and his brothers were all fairly unremarkable average people until John Franken Howard had uh, Encyclo chips installed, which is a very expensive um, piece of equipment that his parents paid for. Basically a chip in their brain that gives them Wikipedia on tap, basically. It gives them yeah. instant access to all encyclopedic information, which is why John Franken Howard are able to become wildly successful figures because uh, obviously the stuff about Howard uh, that's later contradicted hasn't been contradicted yet but that's what allows John Frankenhauer to be hugely successful and then when it comes to Arnold's turn to get the encyclo chip his parents have run out of money and he doesn't get it so that means that Rimmer is right that he didn't have the same breaks as his brothers 
and he's right that it's not his fault that yeah. he's a fuck up and a failure. He it makes it so that he's correct to be bitter about how his brothers were treated better than him, and completely breaks the aspect of his character that he is a man that will blame anyone but himself for his own shortcomings and is constantly clutching at straws and trying to prove that everyone else is against him. And that uh, you know it's not his fault when things go wrong. And what this does is say that yes, he's correct. It's a fair point, which takes away everything that's interesting about yeah. Rimmer's character yeah. and completely breaks it. Yeah, and it also gives him um, a fairly straightforward path to feeling proud of himself because mm. he should feel proud of himself that he's managed to do anything close to what they've done without the chip. Yeah, even if it has taken him years and he's still at a relatively lowly level, at least yeah. he's done something. Any half-decent psychotherapist that he would have ever talked to would have had him clinging on to the fact that he's had no help, he's had no artificial intelligence, everything he's achieved is truly his own and he should feel good about that and that feels like a slam dunk <laughs> that would yeah. like, kind of almost give him some inner peace pretty much straight away and um, I can see what Doug's doing he's reintroducing everyone, he's given us Rimmer's backstory and he's thinking and he, I'm going to pep this up a bit. I'm just going to add a bit more context in there. Something a bit, you know, an interesting wrinkle. Just to just to give his backstory, you know, something a bit different without really mm. thinking about what it does. The consequences of it. Which yeah. is, again, what happened with the whole reveal about Howard was just as much of a failure as Rimmer. Yeah. And therefore, it didn't really matter. So all of that kind of gets mushed up. And then there's the whole thing that his dad isn't his dad. That really mushes things up. So it's almost like it's sort of like going back and back and back and back and, you know, like retconning the retcon and the retcon and the retcon. I still can't quite accept it. It's, it's Obviously, it's in the show. That's what it is. But just I find it really difficult to pass it and to put it into what I only understand about the character. The thing about his dad not being his dad was obviously never something Doug planned. I think it's something that was just put there as a way to make the episode interesting. Yeah. Rather than it being something he ever planned to actually do. I think Lister being his own dad might have been something he may have planned to do at some point, but again, might have been just an idea he came up with and it just kind of be in his bonnet and never really went away. There's the mention of, of Lister creating the universe, and I think that is probably tied into that being his own father thing quite uh, or would have been if, if they'd gone anywhere with it probably in the last human so i imagine mm. lister being his own dad is part of that original plan so you there's a certain kind of grounding there but um am i right in thinking that in all versions rimmer is supposed to be the youngest yes yeah. trojans completely fucked me up on this because it, it's made me think that howard was the youngest because mark dexter because mark dexter yeah exactly <laughs> It's, it's completely messed me up. So yeah, okay. So then the timeline of like Rimmer being last yes, makes sense there. But I think again the head kind of for me for that is that that Howard died before yeah, Rimmer yeah. did. So he looks younger because he died when he was younger. And he also had no reason to be artificially aged as well. Uh, Rimmer is artificially yeah. aged to keep Lister sane. Oh yeah, I think that's basically the accepted the head canon that has become. Canon. <laughs> it does mention the whole thing about like the, this whole resentment of, of his parents then created the creature that then stopped him from being able to be successful he sort of created his own fate yeah so it's, it started off that he had a genuine grievance but he his failure to let go of that grievance has then caused his own problems yeah. in the future and, and then, again that bit is a little bit um time wavy <laughs> um because it it describes like this inner demon his bitterness is this physical form and then in oh, Time yeah. Wave, his, mm. that, his bitterness gets extracted as a physical form. Um, yeah. But this is better than Time Wave. And, and I guess another reason why you can kind of see why Doug was trying to, like, searching to find a new wrinkle to the origin story of Rimmer is that, again, like, he's he's bringing parents into this. 
um, for mm. some reason. I'm not sure why. He's just he just wants to bring parents into the into the story and you know remind us all that everyone has complicated parents and issues relating to their parents and so you you can see exactly what he was reaching for it's just he picked the wrong tin of beans off the shelf or something he's always doing that <laughs> and it made the whole rimmer shelf collapse as a result they were sugar free and salt free beans <laughs> oh god <laughs> Meanwhile, Crichton has had some character development since the last novel. He's Robert now. Yeah, he's Robert, for (laughs) sure. (laughs) There's a reason for it in the story, uh, that they've overridden Crichton's limitation chip, which is basically a shorthand way of fast-forwarding from the mostly useless Crichton of the first two novels to Series 6. Series 6, Robert Llewellyn Crichton. (laughs) They've just... (laughs) There was a limitation chip, which, you know, that's a foolish thing to put into a... That would have been a really cool thing to have had in the novel, is watching Crichton develop that and having him breaking his programming in a much more detailed fashion. I kind of like the idea of Yeah, but they just wanted to get the story started, just, like, skip that section. And, yeah, just Crichton is now instantly the character that he is in the TV series at this point, hugely um, useful and hugely competent. It's so strange. We've gone from the book's straddling series up to series three and four and they've suddenly skipped four and five basically like which Mm. does a lot of bedding in work with these characters and really getting us to like know them inside out is skipped and so we've gone from series three right over to series six and and literally you know speaking when it comes to like the scenes that are being lifted and so i guess that that does account for some of this strangeness um Mm. in tone here because um yeah, really, it'd, be, it'd be like like what the hell would a red dwarf novel look like now? Like what what type of a dwarf would it draw? On it's weird because because last human seems to take from like mainly six and onwards, but I think backwards does use some five loads of four. Better than life also uses four as well, doesn't it? Yeah, because it had a bit of white hole in there. Oh yeah, that's true. But that's proto but in, a, in the timey wimey way of it was written before four. Yeah, yeah. Before four, um, and Rob uses. A, a ton of series four. There is some series four coming up in this book later on, but we'll get there. Spoilers. Oh yeah. So they've gone on board this alternate starbug, and all the crew are well. Crichton, Rimmer, and Cat are dead. Mm-hmm. Lister's poking his way around, and he finds a mortally wounded Kachansky. The Lister is completely missing, and yeah, it's all very <laughs> intrig- it Like it sets up a murder mystery, basically. Yeah. It's like it's what's happened to Lister. Who is responsible for all this? Um, the mission to go and find Lister. Are Lister having to be persuaded to stick around in this alternate universe rather than just getting the fuck back home? Yeah. Basically, Kachansky persuades him to do it because having met her alternate version, she wants to do right by her and keep the promise to her. Whereas Lister doesn't have that connection with his alternate self until he sees that he's mm. with Kachansky, and that's what makes him. Which I think is a nice touch. In his connection to his other self is is even harder because he he he's not seeing many common connectors when he's poking around his his bunk room. Yeah, it, it makes me laugh because it's it's like everything described about the alternate Lister is like you can imagine someone's mum in the early nineties telling you about the dangers of metal music. Uh. Lots of heavy metal music and gore videos, like you know, video nasties of the eighties and stuff. It's, it's it's like a laundry list of like. That sort of well, it's, it's similar panic. to Demons and Angels, where they equate watching horror movies with being evil. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're right. It's it's moral panic, 
about heavy metal being satanic and video nasties making you a serial killer or whatever. I mean, like if it was a few years later, it'd have had it would be full of Grand Theft Auto games. Yeah, it would be video game, violent video game. This is Doug tapping into an attitude, but an yeah. attitude he definitely doesn't have because he would have been watching. I mean, he was watching horror films with you know in the 80s like video nasties i assume with everyone else's age but it, it is it is funny like you know that that's that such a 90s thing you know it may as well like if it had been a few years later we would have had marilyn manson albums yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he listens to eminem yeah, yeah exactly like slipknot with their demonic symbolism everywhere but at this point you'd already had acdc people thought they were you know connected to the zodiac killer um, I think it was the Zodiac Killer. Or there was um, like some serial killer that was linked to ACDC. You had Judas Priest going on trial because people had claimed that they'd hidden um, yeah. satanic messages when you played their songs backwards. And so, yeah, that moral mm. outrage was it's definitely... All, it's right, all the Manson thing. family's fault. It's probably yeah. the worst thing they did. It's <laughs> convince everyone that music was uh, creating serial killers. Oh, no, of course, the Zodiac Killer was uh, Ted Cruz. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Still is. But it does mention Nazis, so it's like Lister is... This other this other lister is potentially more problematic. <laughs> He's got, but yeah, Nazis are. I wouldn't want him to great. be on Twitter. I'll just say. <laughs> it's like, it's but, like obviously, but know, that, that, that's just that. But you can you can tell where the mindset was. It was just because I remember it when watching Demons and Angels and they're going through the low listers bunk room and they're like, yeah. oh, like weapons magazines, gore movies, everything's low and base. And I remember at the time thinking, are you, are you a bad person for? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Understand what you're trying to tell me. In Red Dwarf, Rimmer has um, Fascist Dictator Monthly, and it's a magazine where Hitler is Mister October, and that doesn't make him a fascist. It make he has a macabre fascination with it. Yeah, he has a fascination with leaders and historical power. Alt Lister um, having a magazine that's got Nazis and Satan in it doesn't make him a Nazi Satanist necessarily. No I guess spoilers. We'll, I guess we'll see, won't we? <laughs> but it's yeah, you can have that interest without it, uh, you know, being a problem. Mm. Um, like not everyone is David Sauerbutz from Psychoville. You <laughs> <laughs> can only call five. <laughs> but it all adds up, doesn't it? Like, it's one of those things where there's in isolation, like having a book about Nazis uh, or liking guns. Mm. You know, whatever, whatever, it's fine. But pile it all in at once, and then you're like... Do you know what okay. it is? It's the priest that Ted visits in... Uh... <laughs> yes. Do you not have anything from the Allied side? No, I wouldn't have any interest in that at all. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I always th- I think of your brother, Kepsi. I, was I think just specific- specifically um, Back to Earth weekend... <laughs> And he came down and I looked up at one stage and he was like hunched in the corner with a sleeping bag over him and a torch reading a book about... The Manson family, which, I think it was. Or it might have been Ted Bundy or something yeah. like that. You know, it was Charlie Manson. Is it Charlie Manson? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Mainly because he was just like, I mean, I like Red Dwarf, but this is a bit much. So I'll read my book. <laughs> but, you know, as far as I know, your brother has, hasn't murdered anyone no no not not recently anyway so yeah no. he's, he's he's all right he's got a steady job now he doesn't yeah exactly <laughs> it's a very reductive way of saying someone's bad yeah but it's shorthand isn't it yeah, yeah i get it it's just that it's it's a weird one uh dave says Crichton is a mechanoid 3000 series hmm D- did anyone pick up on that Yes. Well, there's there's, there's, a, there's a mention of a series four thousand. I was going to say he mentions yes. that he's a four thousand later on when he's talking to. Yeah. Um, the this is a massive 
Yeah, another inconsistency like the Starfleet Space Corps thing. Uh, page mm. 48 it is. Uh, it says he's a Mechanoid 3000 series. Right, and yeah. then later on in the book he's a 4000 again, right at the end of our section. He was described as a Series 3000 on the back of the Smegups tape, which, yes. was, uh, <laughs> which was not a dissimilar time. <laughs> oh, yeah, very true. Maybe someone got that from this book. But just, you know, just check. <laughs> Why didn't he go on Dwarf Wiki and find out? Authors that have, like, huge worlds that they can't possibly keep track of usually tend to have fans close to them that are literally just there to, to help them out with timelines and say, oh, uh, you know, have I ever done this? Like, George R. Martin, who's my touchstone basically most things to do with writing um he has like like these two like you know super fans that have been like in the Mm. community for for years and years and they've actually written stuff for them since but he would always just be like you know i'm writing the fourth book and like can you remember the eye color of this particular person because eye color is quite important at times and they just fact check for him like Mm. so if doug had had ellard you know while he was writing this book you wouldn't get shit like this because andrew would have read every every draft and said fix that fix that fix that um, yeah. but obviously he didn't have that at the time they have that on coronation street as well and i assume as a so yeah people that they employ to make sure that they're not kind of like ever you know if someone mentions a sister that make sure that they have always had a sister or whatever yeah yeah god that must be impossible to keep track of. 60 years fuck. worth of it they don't seem to do that for doctor who because they just seem to keep rewriting that every time they try it, yeah. it just yeah. keeps it every, every series uh, happens in a slightly different alternate dimension <laughs> Yeah. The same is true of Coronation Street. It's just they've only ever had one series. <laughs> <laughs> or did they not break and have like? No, EastEnders had. EastEnders is now on series two. <laughs> <laughs> That's so funny. So we go from that. It segues into um, Legion. It's basically yeah. the whole first ten minutes or so of Legion. <laughs> Everything prior to them actually meeting Legion. Is Every there. line. <laughs> Every single line verbatim. They even put Kachansky to one side so that the rest of them can just <laughs> so have, he the same have to figure out. <laughs> but yeah, Kachansky's uh, off sorting out the the navigation, navigation thing. Shit. She yeah. f- she falls asleep, and so meanwhile, Rimmer, Lister, Cat, and Crichton have their exact dialogue, so that it's the same dynamic, so that there doesn't have to be any changes there. But then even when Kachansky turns up, which is like towards the end of this section, Kachansky comes in, she just does the exposition lines and the rest and the, the men get to do all the funny lines. <laughs> yeah. It's a bit, you know. She's integrated well, really well at times and just really badly at other times. And the other time she's like a bit of a yeah a pain in the ass that she's there. Yeah. Like yeah. She basically gets ignored for the the rest of this chapter. It's like... It's it's an inconvenience for Doug that um, she's there. He has to just mention her a couple of times because he wants to just do the funny stuff with the four of them. It's never going to be easy to introduce any anyone new into this ensemble, but then this book does it better than Kachansky in a couple of other ways. Mainly because the you know the characters with specific jobs and you know they. Um, well, I, I think the, the thing is that it's easier to integrate a new character when you're writing new scenarios and new material yeah so when it's an original scenario an original scene in this novel then kachansky can be fun and interesting and add to the dynamic it's just the bits where he wants to just have a breather and copy and paste some stuff from a script he has to then come up with a an excuse for kachansky it could have been a running joke that every time that they they start going into a copy pasted section from an episode she just comes in and has sex with lister that's the bit (laughs) that's what she does (laughs) that's how she integrates 
But instead of being beamed onto a space station to meet a Gestalt entity, they get beamed onto a Gelf moon uh, or asteroid or whatever it is. Yeah. <laughs> where everyone has sex. <laughs> where everyone has sex with each other. I will just say that before they get to that bit, like I do like what um and, and series six does this really well as well is that handling the passage of time in a realistic way it's just like they didn't just get into the asteroid belt go to starbuck and then immediately get scooped up by the gelfs and then carry mm. on. like you, you really get a sense of like this is a proper journey they're going on like night shifts and it takes a few days and like really like time is a character in this is like there's constant discussions about well we could you know we could do this um to save um old kachansky um, but she's probably only going to last for this long. It's going to take this long to get to Red Dwarf, and like working out the um, the time dynamics and everything just makes everything feel a lot more urgent, a lot more like tense. It's actually, really, yeah. really great kind of sense of space and sense of time that Doug puts into this part of the book, especially I think uh, before he starts writing about Spunk. <laughs> yeah, well, this is this chapter that's largely about Spunk. There's a mating ceremony which feels a bit Handmaid's Tale-ish, <laughs> like everyone, like all the women lined up, and then the men take their pick and try and impregnate them, and no one seems to have a real say in it. But yeah, it's it's not problematic or anything, but it's it's it's, it's like deliberately a weird society that he's setting up. I have a problem with it. <laughs> I mean, it's not like Doug is known for setting up one thing in one sentence and contradicting it in the next. But when they're bartering with the guy for their freedom and they find yeah. out that sperm is a currency, he says that there are known breeders and that is 1% of the population. So why do they have a situation where they force the whole population to have sex at a particular time hmm. if they're all infertile? So the only theory that I've got is that there is still an outside chance that even in infertile gelfs, there's a chance, as Dr. Malcolm would say, that uh, life finds a way. And they're just trying to brute force that side of things, maybe. But it just feels weird, because you think if you have a 1% that are fertile, I guess the reality of that would be a little bit grimmer and probably not as like interesting to put in a book, because that 1% would probably be doing terrible things. Mm. But eh, I don't know, it's a weird one. Which is an interesting point of the Gelfs have been created by humans for a specific purpose. What happens when that purpose runs out and they've, you know, they've developed, they've formed their own society. They are, you know, a species in their own right now, but they have these limitations that humans built into them. Mm. And so they, they've had to form their society around this limitation. And so everything about their culture and the way they live their lives is around procreation and is around breeding. By punishment of death <laughs> yeah having just had every single person pretty much in their population just have sex in order to create potential sperm how do they not know where lister and cat would get there from yeah very good point <laughs> also why is what, it what, why is what it is, useful what, to them? what do they think what do they not think it could possibly come from the same method yeah mm. are they assuming that they're also infertile oh okay that they've bought the sperm elsewhere and they're they're, they're uh, sperm okay. rich Presumably, if they knew that what they were using was their own, that would be a problem because it, it's basically going to be useless to them. So they're they're mm. taking a pretty big leap that these humanoid males are not swizzing them with jizz. It's a jizz swizz. Jizz swizz. Merry jizz swizz, everyone. <laughs> so uh, that's unclear because maybe human and you know Felis sapiens sperm is um, valuable to them. Maybe they can do the necessary splicings and whatnot, but. It's against, like in the clear. Promised Land. Yeah. 
again. Dave has a good comment, and mainly because this is amusing, but he says the Gelf market stuff all feels like what Red Dwarf would do with a bigger budget and almost tried to do something like this with a bigger budget but then didn't have enough of a budget for it with uh, Identity Within. Um, mm. where he, said, he said it's not dissimilar in feel to that universally liked Doctor Who episode, The Rings of Achachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachachach
get someone's car back because it's been stolen get in the car back the person saying thank you and then you immediately shoot them and steal their money and drive off (laughs) yeah Uh, especially when you have to return their wallet yes you return their wallet they give you a reward you pass the mission then you kill them and get their wallet back (laughs) yeah so a comment from dave and i i wholeheartedly agree with this one the dialogue between Cat and Crichton over the jacket feels pitch perfect, like something from the show's golden era. Yeah, there's a chase nice. sequence, but the cat pauses. Yeah, <laughs> to, look uh, after this jacket, to, and Crichton's to totally bought in on, to, like you know, like <laughs> Crichton being sincere to to everyone in the crew to like support them is one of the aspects of Crichton that I really like. And so, like him being completely bought into the cat's concerns about his jacket and having a protocol for like you know, what he should do if the cat needs him to look after clothes, I like that. What I like is the fact that they put in the um, the tropes of a market stall chase because he mentions he lets yeah. over two girls carrying a roll of carpet. They might as well be a pane of glass. At this point. <laughs> yeah. really... um, it might as well be. You've got to ask yourself: Is all this going to pay off later on? <laughs> <laughs> and he sidesteps and overturns fruit stalls. It's just every trope like the, the, oh, miniature box in the middle of the road. It's all that kind of that ridiculous <laughs> level of tropes that you're just expecting from a, Expect a fruit stall Lister chase. to break into a song from Aladdin. <laughs> yeah, it's good. It actually reminds me of the um, the lemons market chase, and um, yes. whenever I think about that, I think about the fact that that scene probably took about an hour and a half to two hours to um, to <laughs> film. When I was reading this, I did have lemons in mind in terms of that look. Mm. Yeah, I know that's on Earth, but yeah, we're well, seeing our characters in that kind of scenario. It's that trope of early kind of maybe an Indian market or like you know that area of Asian market from. Mm. A thousand years ago, two thousand years ago, whatever. Yeah, and it's like again, it's Star Wars is kind of responsible for a lot of that stuff as well because mm, yeah. they've kind of taken that aesthetic from you know Moss Eisley and whatnot. Moss Def. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> and so then, after we handily get the information about what's happened to alternate Lister has been arrested, um, Crichton goes over to find out what's going on in the last of our. Um, kind of arbitrary section (laughs) that we put together because it was roughly 80 pages this kind of sets up the rest of the chapter in that we find out a little bit more finally about um what's happened to alternate lister and it's it's minority report minority report is what's happened to alternative lister he's been arrested and some weird tribal justice system using mystics and predictions have have said that he's going to commit a crime in the future and so they've locked him up for it in advance I don't know if it would have been so obviously Minority Report in 1995 because the film of Minority Report didn't come out until the early 2000s. The, the Philip K. Dick novella mm. that it's based on was very much in existence at this point. Yeah, once again, Doug Owen, Philip K. Dick, a pint, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, if, if, you know, Back to Earth is to be believed as well. And I guess, again, like, I'm assuming Minority Report is probably heavily influenced by the Russian gulag system as well but like this you know this all ties back to Siberia and that and that idea of just just locking someone up for the sake of it and the reasons why don't really matter you're giving an arbitrary reason as long as you have a process in place and it looks like it's uh, logical decisions are being made then you you know you can justify it even if you've got a few people protesting outside doesn't really matter does it because (laughs) the majority of people are going along with it again like I know modern context for that at all (laughs) this is a really cool little chapter because it's Crichton doing something very different that we're used to on his own driving it yeah he deals with it masterfully like he plays the um the the fellow what's he called the regulator 
yeah, deal, deals with him really well, like plays him basically. And I, I like it um, a bit like being in Holly's head in the early books. Being in Crichton's is always gives you good stuff. And mm. Rob Grant also knows this, yeah. um, as we will find out, because he's such a unique character and like he's constantly sidestepping all of these little ticks and bits of programming that obviously are still important to him and they're still there while also trying to like achieve something. It's just very interesting. And unique to Red Dwarf. Oh, and it's in this section where he's described as a series 4000. Yeah. Again, oh, there we all go, of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> we have differing opinions on this section uh, from our commenters. Dave says that all the stuff between Crichton and the Regulator is interesting and well-written, but also feels a bit lifeless. Part of it is taking Crichton out of the context of the rest of the Red Dwarf crew and making him interact with someone else on his own. The usual dynamic isn't there, and so comedy doesn't flow as naturally. Whereas Steelian-Nide says, To my mind, this is the most successful chapter of the book thus far. There's no recycled material, and I can just imagine Robert courteously delivering Crichton's lines as he's pelted with spittle and bad food. Yeah, uh, Another moment that could have really worked well as part of the show. Uh, it, it's absolutely, like, in terms of Crichton's character, it is... Like pitch perfect for me. It's fine. It's like it's it's spot on. It's another aspect of the book that I can just I never seem to remember. <laughs> I never seem to remember who the you know who the lister is in the, in the opening paragraphs or why they were there and what the exact details were until I read it again. I don't I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing to be honest. Uh, at least keeps it fresh each time. Yeah, that's true. But you know, I have read this book a lot over the years <laughs> and listened to it uh, in the bridge as well quite a fair few times for my sins. Mm. But this does also feel like Injustice Crichton has to go away and, and talk to the Justice computer to demand a retrial. Mm. This is exactly the kind of conversation I'm expecting him to have. Oh, it's conversation yeah. with the Inquisitor. You don't need to hear it, but you just need to know that there's some democratic process going on. Crichton used logic as a weapon um, very well, yeah. uh, which makes sense because he's a robot. So, like, obviously this isn't the end of a chapter or the end of a part by any means, it's just that that's where we've put our kind of bookmark in for now because it works out quite nicely in terms of page length. But... This does offer a kind of pause now that we know what the situation with Alternate Lister is and what's happened to him. The rest of this part basically deals with that. And it's an intriguing thing to have set up, like Alternate Lister has been wrongly imprisoned and so our crew have decided that they're going to rescue him. They're yep. going to formulate an escape plan. And yeah. it's it's nice. This is where the slightly jarring in media res, or however I'm supposed to pronounce that, pays off. And when when that does pay off, like you've got through the weird beginning and it's slightly uncomfortable, and now you're starting to feel grounded, like you know what's going on. There's a clear goal. It's starting to feel like Red Dwarf again, even though mm. it is still a bit weird. The book is really picking up at this point. Um, I honestly can't remember whether it <laughs> keeps going like this. It's certainly more enjoyable than I remember it being at this point. So yeah, it's, there's a hell of a pace to it, isn't there? Yeah, it's like it's cracking along really well. But it's really dense as well. Like the chapters yeah. themselves are longer than the chapters in the previous books. There's a lot of plot condensed into them. The downside of that is there's less breathing space to explore the characters as much. It's very much a plot-driven story rather than character-driven at this stage. Yeah. But that's kind of okay because it's a good story, it's a good plot, it's intriguing and it's a page turner and you and you really want to know what's happening next. It definitely lacks some of the nuance and the, the heart, I guess, of the first two books at this stage. But from what I remember, mm. there is more of that to come. So, Well, I think that's exhausted all the major talking points, but of course there are still many small points to poke our noses into. Uh, <laughs> so let's just on. have a, a little breather and we'll get right on it.
So, we normally have a big batch of small points from our listeners slash readers at this stage, but we've sat and gone through and figured out that we've pretty much mentioned uh, most of the opinions that have been given already. But, obviously, we can't possibly hope to read out every single comment that people have left, so thank you to everyone that sent them in, and make sure that you check out the threads on G&T uh, to see what everyone else is saying, because there's yeah, it was a really great discussion around these novels that's going on there, and I'm uh, very grateful to everyone who's joined in. But we'll pick up quickly on something that Stillian Nides said about the last chapter, actually, in The Regulator. If this had been adapted for the TV show, then I can imagine a high-status actor, someone like Patrick Stewart or Dave Jacoby in the role of the regulator it would have been the kind of scene that no other sitcom would do. Are there any actors left from Absolutely? <laughs> that haven't been in it. <laughs> John Sparks yeah. uh, we could have <laughs> Murray Hunter <laughs> It's kind of like when they made The End, Rob and Doug wanted to get Ronnie Barker to be the captain so that you'd have this like all-star cast and then kill them all off and just leave the two unknowns that you uh, yeah. <laughs> as the main characters for the rest of the series I think you've lost me there. I don't know. What? 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 <laughs> Is the idea, an idea that Robin Doug had, was that they wanted to fill the Red Dwarf crew in the end with lo- lo- people like Ronnie Barker that were like huge comedy megastars and not reveal in advance that they were all going to die <laughs> yeah. um, oh, during okay. the episode. And so you were just left with Craig Charles and Chris Barry. Who were, who would at the time would have been on the, right at the bottom of the pecking order of comedy talent, and you've you've killed off all the big star names. That's what they wanted to do. God, that's a ballsy decision. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, the BBC was already taking more than enough risks doing the series. They probably didn't, didn't want to like right. worry about pissing people off. Yeah, Miss Sal Red Dwarf is Ronnie Barker's new sitcom. All right, I'm going to whap one of my small points out now. Which is that in the sirens bit, um, one of the few things that's added that's not uh, just a piece of dialogue verbatim from sirens is a joke about airline chicken Kievs. Predates the joke about airline chicken Kievs in Epidemic. Oh yeah. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's obviously something that is on Doug's one of Doug's pet hates. He must have had a bad chicken Kiev. On Lots the plane of flying to and from LA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Around the time. What is the deal with airline food? <laughs> So I've got a small point. I know. And it's actually, again, I can't actually remember the context for this, but when, uh, when I think it was when Crichton realises that you know, Lister's kind of getting his memories back, is that Crichton smiles like a stone skipping along a lake. And I thought that was quite a nice... Interesting. Quite a nice little bit of... Bookmark that. Why? <laughs> Something that you've evidently forgotten from later in the book. Oh, uh, fuck yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. 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 yeah, I mean, we've already established that I don't remember the, one of the main <laughs> twists in this book every single yeah. time I read it. So. Sir, sir, I don't know what the fuck you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> you will. Okay. In a few dwarf casts time. <laughs> I've got another small point that's about this kind of section. I don't know whether this is just me, but because this is based on the opening of Sirens and it's establishing what the format is and establishing the crew, and it's clearly designed as the kind of jumping on point so that even if you don't have the context of the previous Red Dwarf novels, if you read this section, then everything should make sense. However, right towards the end of it, they mention Holly had performed some miracle to equalise their ages um, with regards to Lister and Kachansky on Backwards World. Who's Holly? As a new reader, that is oh, the only yeah. mention of Holly. <laughs> no idea who Holly is, <laughs> unless you've previously read the other books or seen the TV series. 
One final uh, small point then. There's a bit where I genuinely can't remember whether it pays off or not, but it's a bit of dialogue or a bit of prose rather that feels like it's there because it's going to pay off, which is that when they're going around the marketplace buying all the stuff with their jizz, um, it says that they also buy a number of volumes outlining the history of the belt that Crichton insisted would come in handy. It's like, oh yeah, Chekhov's history volumes. <laughs> I think that does come up. but I think it does, but I can't quite remember the details. Yeah. But yeah, it's a bit of a... It's a bit of an obvious uh, bit of a uh, setup, if that's the case. And hang on, a book about the history of the belt. Like, did the whole belt come through the Omni Zone? Because this colony of Gelf, they're, they're from another dimension. They they came through the Omni Zone. Did they? Yeah. Yeah, they were kind of they were outcasts. Weren't they? Well, not outcasts, but they were kind of like the they were all the dis- disposable bits of um, civilization. Yeah, and then they got so did they did the entire it's asteroid good. belt do that or just their ship hang on hang on hang on let me just read this bit this might this might be it as far as you can ascertain they've been created on earth to help human humankind human humankind terraform new galaxies and had wound up in this reality as a result of being sucked into the omni zone after some sort of mutiny with their human masters fucking get in I, I think it's safe to assume that the belt was sucked into the omni zone that's come from their what whatever their dimension is as well hmm Rather than individual, you know, gelfs yeah, or individual of yeah. bits of flotsam have come in. So, what does the history of the belt really mean? It means that I don't know because I can't remember what the payoff is to it. It could just be the history of the belt, as in the item of clothing. <laughs> the belt was invented. <laughs> it's a cat book. <laughs> to stop people's trousers falling down. <laughs> the belt was invented when Andrew Belt tried to put on his trousers twice. <laughs> This was unsuccessful until James Buckle got involved. <laughs> well, there's a, a preview of uh, the next, <laughs> of the next episode. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's time for us all to display our small passages. It was a lot harder. We all struggled to come up with, not to come up with a section that we liked, because there's obviously bit, but like Red Dwarf in general, this book doesn't clip as well <laughs> as the uh, as the previous two. Uh, the previous two had all these sort of diversions where you would get into characters' heads, or the like. The action paused for a bit of a funny concept, or uh, or to you know examine how a character is reacting to the situation, or or whatnot. Whereas this is all just plot, plot, plot. We contemplated acting out the sex scene, but we, <laughs> thankfully, for all concerned, we've elected against doing that. We're going to do the sex scene for our Patreon supporters. <laughs> So yeah, we've all got our own small, probably smaller than um, average passages this time around, and it's Danny's turn first. Okay, this is a bit that everyone has probably seen anyway, because it is from um, Sirens. But it's basically, it's a more descriptive version of the uh, Rimmer loading sequence, which I thought was worth mentioning, because it does very well visually, but in the book it's also just as good. Okay. Crichton typed a passcode into the wall comp. A hatch cover flipped open and the mechano took out an object the size of a marble. Mr. Rimmer, sir, said Crichton in reply to Lister's look. He's a hologram. This is his light beam. He placed the light beam on the floor. Rimmer, he's my best mate, isn't he? Crichton's face dissolved into a look of distaste, as if he'd just sampled his first goat kebab. You are <laughs> sick, sir. Maybe he needs another boost of synaptic enhancer. 
He syringed Lister a second time and then tapped the boot up sequence into the computer and watched as the light be gently lifted off the floor and hovered three feet from the ground. Download physical form, he said to the voice command unit and watched as Rimmer's black and white image crackled into existence, rippled with white noise. Six feet tall and square-shouldered, he stood, with a small embossed H imprinted on his forehead under the scoop of brown hair fastened down tighter than rigging in a storm. His face was pointy, his lips thin, his nostrils so cavernous that if he had been bound in leather in terms of... (laughs) (laughs) this is a good one (laughs) his nostrils so cavernous that if it had been bound in leather and turned upside down they would have been used by a leprechaun as a drum kit (laughs) access personality banks Crichton murmured into the VC unit a series of bar charts appeared on the screen load characteristics, load arrogance the first bar, a tall one slowly filled with a green liquid as if being poured from a vial into the accompaniment of a mounting scale sound effect load charisma a second bar, a very short one was filled with a single blip Load neuroses, the next bar, by far the longest, slowly began to fill up. No point waiting, sir. Loading the neuroses lasts longer than gone with the wind. I'll go run that bath. Oh, that rimmer, said Lister, as the memory enhancer suddenly hit the spot. Oh, God. That rimmer. I don't think that scene would have been written like that if it hadn't existed in the TV show first. It's like, yeah. he, he is transcribing what happens in the TV. Mm. I'd actually written in my notes, describing Rimmer's bar charts isn't as funny as seeing them. Yeah. <laughs> I think... so the fact that the neurosis of the um, charisma is shown in his little finger is yeah. a yeah, really yeah. good That's an visual joke. layer like, in the yeah. TV one. That's definitely a case of transcribing what happens. Like It's basically audio description yeah. <laughs> yeah. for the TV series, rather than thinking like from scratch in, in prose, how does it work best? I didn't mean to shit on your passage. <laughs> Again, without having seen Rimmer, if you've not read the books before and you don't know what Rimmer looks like, it's a good way of showing everything yeah. about yeah, his Yeah, it's a very good intro yeah. into him, yeah. I'm next, and it's a bit of a, a more horror-y, gory section gore. <laughs> than that, gore. obviously. And it's from the next chapter along. Suddenly, the cat's voice cut in. What's this? His torch pointed to a matted fur island, about a foot across, floating on the water. He transferred the torch from his right hand to his left. What is it? He started to pick it up. It's heavy. The cat hauled it out of the water and flipped it round to look at it. He stared into familiar brown eyes, and his screams slammed around the chamber like a berserk squash ball. It was a head. It was the head of a humanoid. The head of a humanoid who was identical to the cat. The head fell from his grasp and dropped back into the water with a splash. Lister waded across to where the cat was standing, his heart beating out a karaoke on his ribs. I don't know what a karaoke is. (laughs) You okay? For a dude who's just picked his own head out of a swamp, I'm doing great, falsettoed the cat. Crichton ran his side scan over the dismembered skull. Kachansky waded across. Well, it says, organism incomplete. (laughs) There's more to it there, but I've decided to cut there because that's a really good punchline. It is. Uh, until to the section. And there is a slight bit of Doug's uh, tendency to to not know where the best out is for a yeah. joke. Because it goes on to have people commenting on the size scam doing that rather than just leaving it as the good gag of organism incomplete. Uh, right then. Uh, bend over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, so this is from chapter three. This is Lister taking a look around the other Lister's quarters, who definitely isn't a serial killing psychopath. Lister sat on a chair in his other self's quarters and scanned the room. 
His other self clearly didn't share these quarters with Kachansky. There was a rough bachelor feel to the whole room. Clothes and engine parts were scattered everywhere, cans of Swarfiga jostled with aftershaves, while stacks of cheap horror novels filled the bookshelves with them. And the 2000-disc mental metal hard rock music collection was stacked in xylophonic piles. Skulls of all shapes and sizes, some ashtrays, some ornaments, some acting as storage jars, littered the room. On the walls were framed posters of a variety of frightening rock bands, most of whom appeared to be eating a selection of cute furry animals. Okay, boomer. (laughs) He picked up a black Les Paul copy with two missing strings and plucked it tuneously. Sweet as a nut. He put the guitar down and opened the metal locker that doubled as a wardrobe. A pile of magazines slithered out from the top of the shelf, hitting him on the head and fanning out over the floor. He stooped to pick one up. They were all different issues of the same title, something called Gore. Lister idly flicked through the pages. Murder, Nazis, Satan, Hell's Angels, J.K. Rowling, and lots of strange rambling letters and articles about subjects he wasn't familiar with. Lister wished he hadn't found them. So his other self had a morbid fascination with the lurid. It wasn't a big deal, but he'd rather not have known. He collected the magazines together and stacked them neatly back in the wardrobe. So yeah, there's... um couple of red flags there for the lad wonder how it's gonna pan out i like xylophonic piles yeah i don't quite I don't understand that <laughs> like a xylophone yeah. so like getting progressively oh i shorter see oh okay oh okay that's basically how i stack books all right that makes me a uh, psychopath then, doesn't interesting. It? <laughs> Brilliant. there's another thing i have to fucking deal with i hadn't noticed actually when i read this my brain assumed that it was cheap horror movies, but it's cheap horror novels, so at least he reads. That's alternative yeah. Lister. Yeah. <laughs> he's, you know, he's expanding his horizons. It's uh, it's worth pointing out as well, just for further on in that scene as well, that the thing that Lister, that gets Lister on board with saving his previous self is seeing that there is a, a loving picture of Lister and Kachansky. So he knows that he's got that in common with him, at least, and yeah. that is the most important thing, which is nice. Or is it? Should they have just gone back to the Omnizone? Find out. Find out in the next book club. <laughs> Good. Right, right. This is an outro now. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking did it. Because <laughs> we've been bollocking on for quite some time. Uh, but yes, the next book club will cover the rest of Time Fork. Um, just to make things easier. Um, it's about another 70-odd pages. So chapters 6 through to 14 of Time Fork. Uh, basically stop when you reach the end of this chapter. So read that and get your comments in on the article for this Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv and we will as ever read a selection out when we convene for the next book club. However, the next Dwarfcast to be released will be our commentary for Series 12, Episode 2, Siliconia and that will also include the next portion of Waffleman the section where we answer topics that have been set by you, our loyal listeners slash readers. We've got quite a lot of waffles in the waffle pile already, but if you have any more suggestions, then mention them on GNT or on Twitter. Twitter handle is Ganymede Titan. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. In the meantime, thank you ever so much for listening, especially if you made it all the way through to the end of this epic, epic conversation. <laughs> stay safe, stay at home, don't do anything I wouldn't do. I don't leave him any option. Uh, <laughs> and as always... Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. <laughs>